0: Welcome to the Stock Talk Podcast. I don't have a cool intro, and I probably won't make one. I personally hate those drawn-out, dumb musical intros a lot of podcasts have. So, let's just go straight to the topic at hand. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of the Stock Talk Podcast. I'm making this podcast as a, I would say, almost an alternative format to the YouTube videos. YouTube videos that I have out there are pretty much uh, limited to like 10 to 30 minutes. So they're shorter in format. What I want to do with these podcasts is allow for a more in-depth discussion of very specific topics. So my goal here is to hopefully before each podcast, bring up uh, the topic I'm gonna be making the podcast on through my Seeking Alpha InstaBlog um, and ask some questions of readers so that we'll have a wealth of things to talk about. So I've already done this for today and the topic today is your biggest problem in trading. So I started out with three questions And I wanted to get people's responses to those three questions. Generally, the format of this podcast is simply going to be going through those questions, giving my thoughts on it. Um, From that, drawing a a conclusion. I'll present as a hypothesis or theory in most cases and then explain through it. And then I will move on to whatever leftover questions there are. Usually, these questions will be coming from my uh, YouTube page. So there's always gonna be a bunch of YouTube comments that have gone unanswered. I'm gonna take this podcast as an opportunity to answer those. So let's begin with the uh, basics. So we'll begin with the your biggest problem in trading questions. So I presented these three questions and we're gonna go through, we'll do one question at a time. And by the way, there was a contest for this. I was going to give the person who asked the best three questions um, two weeks free of Seeking Alpha Pro. I have already chosen that person. Uh, This was a while back. I think it was Adam House, if I'm not mistaken. I've already contacted him, so we've set that up. Uh, I hope to be able to give something away free for every podcast so that I can make sure that I'm getting... Um, enough questions before I go into the podcast otherwise it's just gonna be basically what I've been talking about the entire time through YouTube and through Seeking Alpha I want to get some more um, varied ideas to talk about so that I know that I'm affecting people in some way what I mean by that is if I were just to talk about my own trading methods you would essentially want to, you you essentially have no choice but to mimic my trade, right, my trading style. And that's not my goal with this podcast. What I hope to do is I hope to give you advice on your trading style so that you can either make it more efficient or reduce the costs or increase the probability that you make the correct call. All that stuff I can generally help you with, but I need to know what you're trading, I need to know what your problems are, and for that, I must ask questions so let's go ahead and without further ado go into question number one what is one thing about your trading methodology that has changed in the last month so if you are a trader hopefully you're experimenting with new types of trading perhaps new instruments perhaps new sectors or even new trading styles, so you might have switched from fundamental to technical or vice-versa. You need to be evolving as a trader. You need to stick with those methods that work for you, but once in a while, throw some capital at a new type of trade and see if that makes sense. Of course, one trade that way isn't going to determine for you whether that's a trading methodology that fits your needs. but at least trying it out, you can see some of the unanticipated problems that you would not have seen otherwise that you might have been thinking didn't actually exist and, well, you would have just basically thrown a bad idea into the garbage, which is what you wanna do. Trading is a type of evolution. You can think of it as a type of genetic algorithm where successful trades are incorporated into your trader's toolbox and the useless ones are well eliminated. So let's move into this. I have 18 people who've answered this Insta blog post. So in other words, I have 18 answers for each question. I'm going to read through the answers and if I think it's worth expounding on, I will do so. All right. So, here we go. The fortune teller says, um His changes have been becoming more cautious and hedging, and therefore hedging, he says. So becoming more cautious, I'm not sure what that means. We should be treating trading as a science, not an art, even though it sounds cool to say trading is an art. It's a science because we can backtest our strategies, assuming you actually have a, a real strategy. Too many people, especially those on the news, will give you very broad predictions. They'll say, this stock will go up. Yeah, well, how far will it go up? And when will it stop going up? If you make a prediction with quantitative numbers and quantitative time, that's a trading strategy that can be backtested and proved whether successful or uh, a failure in the end. Now, unfortunately, a term like cautiousness doesn't tell me anything. What is cautiousness? Is that um, keeping more of your capital in cash? Is it putting less of your capital into each trade? I simply don't know. So this doesn't really tell me much. Now, hedging is also an issue that we will probably be discussing possibly in a specific podcast where the topic is hedging. So for now, I'm not gonna get into that. But essentially what hedging is, is reducing your risk on a certain bet, and there's many things you can hedge. When we talk about options, you want to hedge certain Greek values. For example, you hedged theta on a call option. Um, What that means is you reduce your exposure to the time decay of holding the time option. So if you ever play options, you know that every day that you hold that option, every day that goes by, you are losing a bit of money. Now if you hedge theta, you can Reduce or completely eliminate that time decay. That is hedging in the option uh, market and then there's hedging in the general market a VIX hedge, it's uh, a little too complex um, Let's we'll just talk about a normal hedge a put hedge so a put hedge says You are gonna be long in the market. This is called a married put by the way You're long in the market. So maybe you're holding an index fund and you're afraid that maybe there's gonna be a market crash or something like Trump will get into office and people will start to sell their stuff, if you're worried about that, you can hedge your long position by buying a put option on the market. So for every 100 shares, that's called a lot, every lot of the index fund you hold, you buy one put option. What that does is it hedges against the losses. So whatever the strike price is, that is what you can sell your, your long position at in the worst case scenario. We'll talk more about hedging in the future, but that's the general idea. This guy is saying basically he's more cautious, so he must hedge. Again, I don't know what cautious means, so, so next answer. Iron Wing Capital says, I have an innate bearish bias. In the last month, I have moved closer to eliminating that bias. Realizing that the market can be very bullish, even when it doesn't make fundamental sense. I do my best to trade what I see, not what I feel. Last month has brought me closer to that goal. All right, I like what he says. Um, It's very rare that a trader actually sees his own bias. So I'm curious to know how he knows that he has a bearish bias. Or, I mean, if your bias is really strong, it's obvious. If you're reading Zero Hedge every day, for example, you're exposing yourself to news that has a very one-sided story to the stock market. So in that case, you know you have that bias. Now having a bear bias is good maybe once every eight years, but it's bad the other seven years. So this is my issue with that dude Peter Schiff, the guy who correctly predicted the market crash in 2008 and has been milking that prediction ever since. By setting up his own uh, website where you can buy gold. Going on every news program and saying the market's going to crash again ever since 2009. This guy's giving awful advice. Just because he was right once. um, Doesn't give him some sort of authority on future market crashes. But too many people trust him. And that ends up as people buying gold while gold drops. uh, People being bearish when they shouldn't be bearish so any of those biases that you have that are held over a long period of time is gonna end up they're gonna end up hurting you I mean you could see why that's so so what iron ring wing Capital says is that he admits he has a bias um, but he knows that the market can be bullish and there is when many traders would go into cognitive dissonance style and try to explain away the bullishness by saying something like, well, the Fed is pumping money into the stock market, Um, eventually they're going to run out, it's all a scam, and one day it's going to come crashing down. Well, that's fine. If you want to be bearish on that one day when it comes crashing down, great, do so. You'll be rich. But in the meantime, there's no reason to have a bearish bias. If the market's going up, you want to be along with it, or you can just ignore all of that and essentially be market hedged by not playing a directional momentum strategy on the overall market. What you can do here is you have a specific trading style that is market neutral. Trading gaps is one of those. Um, Trading earnings is one of those. Seasonality can help you determine which direction you want to be in general for a specific trade, but if you're, for example, half short, half long, you're essentially going to be market hedged. So if the market crashes, it's not any skin off your nose, right? Um, if the market crashes, half of your stuff grow, the other half fall. You're market neutral. Uh, the idea here is that you're choosing good shorts and you're choosing good longs, so that if uh, you get some sort of mean reversion principle, overall you're going to be you're going to be profitable. So if the market just keeps going up, of course your shorts are now swimming against the stream, but Overall, you've chosen the best of both sides. So while staying market neutral, you can still profit. That's the idea there. So I like what he says. Um, I'm just a little confused as to why he still has a bearish bias if he knows that the market can be very bullish. Why not just say I'm done with having any biases at all and I'm just going to look at the particular trade in question. All right. The next answer is Bev90210. Oh, hmm, I wonder what a reference that is to. He says, or she says, I am doing fewer diagonals and more directionals. Now Bev is referring to option strategies. A diagonal option strategy is considered a complex option strategy. It's when, for example, in the long direction, you buy call options for, he doesn't say which which uh type it is but here's an example you buy call options for that are dis, that are expiring in December um, with the strike price of let's say 100 and then you sell call call options that are expiring in November and are at strike price 210 that is essentially a theta hedge with unlimited upward profits and i really do like diagonals the problem with diagonals though is that if you are going to run diagonals um, for a long period of time. For example, a position trade that's over several months. You're going to be needing to sell those call options quite frequently, and that's going to add up in commissions, um, which really isn't, isn't bad. You're essentially bringing in profits every month or every week in the case of the weeklies. You can treat it like dividends. I don't think there's anything wrong at all with diagonals. You're not going to be completely theta hedged. Um. so Bev didn't really explain why this change was but Bev has abandoned many of his or her di- diagonals for directionals now directional is simply the standard trade that most beginners will make which is you buy stock or you short stock you're in a certain direction up or down or you could buy a call, sell a, sell a call those are both directional plays. Um, without an explanation, I don't know what Bev wants to say here. I am completely in favor of diagonals, so I'm quite curious as to why Bev would have abandoned diagonals. There's really nothing wrong with diagonals at all. You don't limit your upside. You don't limit. Um, you don't limit your your ability to hedge theta. Great car honking. Cool. Alright, well, I'm going to pause this and uh, continue where I left off when that car alarm gets shut off. Alright, so we are back. Uh, The owner never got the alarm off, so I had to go take a crowbar to the car. But it's quiet now. I wasn't seen. So everything could be okay. Now, where were we? We were on the topic of directionals versus diagonals. And again... If you're going to play a quick like earnings trade or a gap play, you don't need to use directionals. The real reason you're going to use directionals is to hedge theta. That's really it. If you're worried about time decay on your options, you'll probably benefit from playing a diagonal strategy. All right, let's move on to S.D. Lombardi who answers question number one by saying that he started to sell stocks and hold cash in anticipation of what? Or selling puts at lower strike prices. All right, so I guess he's expecting a market crash, and his strategy is just to hold cash. I don't think it's ever a good idea to have a huge amount of cash in your account. Just doesn't make sense. Um, From a mathematical perspective, at the very least, you shouldn't ever really hold cash because it has a sharp ratio of essentially zero or sometimes a negative. Um, now if you don't know what a sharp ratio is, it's essentially a number that allows you to determine the risk versus the reward of a specific position. Cash seems safe because, well, it's cash, you can't really lose it if the stock market goes down. Unfortunately the cash doesn't grow no matter what the stock market does. Whereas whenever the stock market does anything, there is always an opportunity to make money off of what it does. If it goes up, you can make money. If it goes down, you can make money. If it goes sideways, you can make money. So if you have a prediction that the market's going to fall or it's going to trend sideways, why not use a strategy with a positive sharp ratio on that thesis instead of just liquidating everything and holding cash like Scrooge McDuck. just doesn't make sense. And from the Kelly formula, which is a mathematical method of determining your position size, you will find that cash is generally going to be like 1% of your portfolio. It just doesn't make sense to have cash, honestly. Um, there's so many different choices that are superior to cash, that don't have high risk, You could always run a calendar spread for example if you think the stock market's gonna trend sideways Um, you think the market's gonna fall and you're worried about time decay and you're also worried about let's say uh, you're worried that that volatility is gonna rise well what you can do is you can make a synthetic short position with a married call I mean there's so many different option strategies that are superior to cash. It's just that the average trader the average investor is too afraid to, maybe it's not fear, but they're either afraid of options because options get this really bad rap for being risky when it depends on the strategy. There's so many different options strategies that you can't say as a whole options are risky or safe. You have to look at the individual strategy. and. Second, it could just be that people don't want to dedicate any extra time to learning how to use options, which is funny because they'll spend so much time reading rumors about stocks or looking at the financials of the company. It's just, it seems ironic to me. Spend a few hours over the week. Let's say you spend an hour per day for the next week reading about options By the end of the week, you'll have a pretty good understanding and you'll at least know how to make a simple options hedge that is vastly superior to cash in both the sideways and the downward market theories. One example would be a, uh, you could say, let's say you run a bearish credit spread. I mean that's going to be better than cash because that gives you cash. I mean it puts cash in your account right away. As soon as you open the strategy, you get cash and you can keep that cash as long as you are right even if the market trends sideways and your theory is to go is that it's going to go down you still get to keep some of that cash you don't have to be completely right but you do let's put it this way some of these strategies can make you profit if you're right or wrong an example would be a ratio spread A ratio spread can help you profit if the market goes up slowly or if the market goes down really quickly. Both of those can profit from certain types of ratio spreads. Again, this is stuff you need to study. We will talk about certain option strategies in future podcast episodes. But for now, the idea here is that cash is not really at all a logical choice for certainly investment, for, but also for hedging against what you suspect to be a market crash. All right. Next, we have an answer from Hugh Kim. Hugh Kim is a very nice Korean lady. I've spoken to her several times on the phone. Um, well, I, I can disclose this because she has disclosed this right here. Her answer is, I'm still holding my stocks until I go back up. Um, when we spoke before, she was holding a, a big basket of blue cap stocks. And unfortunately, a lot of investors think that the blue cap stocks are the safest. So they just buy whatever's, you know, popular, whatever a glam, a glamor stock is, they are going to be attracted to it. So these days, by the way, a glamor stock is a stock that everybody knows about. So it's like Apple. Netflix, it's one of those stocks where you just need to say the word or the ticker and everybody knows exactly what the story is right Those stocks are talked about so frequently in the news that They attract people who don't really have time to research stock. They hear that wow Apple has shot up because of the new iPhone I'd better buy it too and they decide to actually go through based on that little piece of information. It's the natural reaction to just, well, group psychology. This is group psychology. It's human psychology. We want to be with the group naturally. So we want to choose what's popular naturally. Unfortunately, there's money at stake. And choices based on popularity simply don't make sense, especially when we find that Glamour stocks actually underperform the market. So if you want to do anything with Glamour stocks, the more logical choice is to short them, if you're going to short anything. They fall harder on earnings, by the way, on earnings misses than any other stock. So if Netflix misses an earnings, they will fall... Um, significantly, whereas if uh, NTPN, if that's a ticker, I don't even know what that is, if that one falls or misses on earnings, it's not going to fall so far because it's it's not a glamour stock. It's not the type of stock that you get a lot of news about. So if it misses on earnings, that piece of news goes pretty quiet behind the scenes. It's there, but you got to look it up. On the other hand, if Apple misses on earnings, that's going to be on CNBC. It's going to be on CNN. And your average Joe investor is going to see that and get scared and probably sell some of his shares. So, what I think Miss um, Kim did incorrectly here was exactly what I just described buying stocks because they're glamorous stocks. And not because of the fundamentals behind them. Now, she is holding them with the expectation they will go back up. I'm not sure if that's such a good idea either. I really would like it if you guys in the future could post your reasonings. Your reasons for your answers to these questions. Think of back in high school where you needed to show your work. Please do that. All right, now we move on to Adam House, and I believe he was the winner of this contest. Adam House says, because I'm trading options more, I started thinking a lot more about the dollar move rather than the percentage. I've also been thinking more about the short side, which is new for me, coming from a more long-term slow approach. Now, I like this answer for two reasons. One, options have convinced him to take short positions. A lot of investors are afraid of taking short positions because theoretically you could lose everything and go bankrupt on one wrong trade. But with options, you can control your risk. You know exactly how much capital is at stake and you can control the amount of capital that's at stake. With short positions on stock, you cannot do so. Now why should Adam Hedge. Why should anybody hedge with short positions? Well, first of all, it makes you market neutral, so you don't have to worry about looking at how the Dow index has moved every day. And second, a lot of the best gains are in the short position. A lot of the glamour stocks that we just talked about will bring huge gains if you are short on those stocks when a bad piece of news comes in. Those are great positions to have. Now over a long period of time, um, of course, long positions are going to pay off, or will have in the past, we don't know about the future. Long positions will pay off because generally the market moves upward, right? But when it does move downward, it moves downward erratically. And those little spikes downward can make you rich really quickly. Especially with options and especially when you start considering the dollar value of the stock Not the percentage which is the other thing Adam has mentioned I'm gonna take another break right here. This garbage truck is really really annoying It's been an hour and still crazy noisy Tell me this is not annoying can you hear this? Some weird tribe is singing out there I'll be back in an hour, again, Try to continue this podcast. I never knew making a podcast would be so difficult. Okay, we are, we are actually back now. I Molotov cocktailed the trash truck and I shanked the, uh, the tribesman who was singing. We were on the topic of looking at percentage gains versus looking at dollar gains. When we play options, we're dealing with something called delta. Every option strategy has a certain delta associated with it. And that delta represents how much we expect to profit <clears throat> for every dollar movement in the direction of that directional strategy. We need to know the specific price target in many cases to adequately calculate how much we can expect to gain for that options strategy. Now, when you're playing with stocks, everybody talks about percentage gains, and that makes sense. Because you put in a certain amount of money, you can calculate what you're to get back in the end that way, just by looking at the percentages, multiplying by one point whatever the percentage is. And this is also good because it doesn't matter how much money you have, this applies to everybody. But when you play with options, we're dealing with very clear dollar values. So it's a lot better to look at dollar gains. And what kind of practical effect will that have on you as a trader? This, the, making the switch from thinking in percentages to thinking in dollar movements. This will actually turn you away from the lower value stocks. In other words, you'll probably completely avoid penny stocks. You'll probably start to dismiss stocks trading around $10 to $20 in that range because the gains you make from those, even if it's a large percentage move, aren't very large in the dollar value. That's why option traders tend to make their biggest gains when they're playing directional strategies on uh, stocks like like AutoZone that trades in the $1,000. Because a small movement in that stock in percentage, for example, maybe 1% move, is actually a $100 movement. And if you're holding a single call option, you're making, uh, if it moves $100, you're making 10 grand on that movement. Whereas the person who's holding the stock is not. They're just making 1%. So it's really important if you're trading directional option strategies to know that delta value, to know what you expect to gain for a specific movement um, dollar-wise in that stock. I encourage you if you're trading options to begin thinking in terms of dollars and not in terms of percentages. That said, if you're playing with stock, feel free to continue thinking in terms of percentages. Um, it would be cool if you could do both. If you did both, you'd probably see that in some situations you'll be kicking yourself for not buying options. you would be thinking I only made 2% whereas option traders made thousands of dollars on that on that trade and uh, vice versa. Well, if you're playing options on stocks in the $5 to $15 region, you'll probably realize it's kind of dumb and you'll rather switch to a synthetic long or just a pure stock strategy. Synthetic long, if you don't know, is when you buy call options and sell put options it mimics holding a long position in the stock. I'm right, we're going to move on to the next person. Gerpizan. 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 Don't know how to pronounce the name. But his response to the question of his uh, biggest change in the past month in trading is that resilience when resilience when market goes against you even if fundamentals support the trade. I'm not sure what that means. I'm going to go to the next one. Uh, Banner... Ben... Bannertal says, I read more commentaries and financial articles, specifically Seeking Alpha. This has given me more insight, therefore I make better trading decisions. Well, that really depends on your source. Lots of the articles online, um, I find, actually most of the articles online, are not there to help you make a good choice in the market they're there to help the the publisher make money through ad revenue so it's not like everything online and it's not like if you read uh, if you start reading financial news you'd become a better trader it might actually be the opposite because you're getting information from the mainstream which is often wrong um, so I guess this has worked for this guy. Um, if so, he probably has some good sources. I recommend you stay away from pundits without good track records or pundits who who claim to be gurus, gurus but don't put any of their skin in the game. Um, besides myself, a good trainer to learn from is uh, Todd Horwitz. He puts his money on the line. Uh, if you listen to his info, you'll see that he he knows options probably better than anyone else. He's a, a different kind of trader, though. He's not like uh, I am from a academic background. So he knows all of this statistical stuff implicitly, and he doesn't talk about the Greeks of the options. He talks more in common sense terms. Don't be um don't be too concerned with a person's background as well if you're looking at financial information you really need to look at that person's track record and what they base their trade recommendations on a lot of people base it on news on rumors stay away from those and uh, stick with the people who have a very clear method of how they make a trade so my method I believe is very clear I use statistical data to basically bet in favor of a specific probability and in the long term we play the law of large numbers and the majority of our trades should pay off. Uh, Bubba who I just talked about does the same thing. Uh, He doesn't base his trades on statistics though he bases his trades on his experience so I don't know how much experience he's had probably three or four decades. He started out when options first became available and uh, from then, he just became a trader. So, again, background's not important. The fact is, Bubba, for example, says the same thing I say. He is using a probability model. He's betting in favor of the, the odds. So, you want to be the casino. You don't want to be the guy sitting down at the casino table. Most of the people are telling you, sit down at the casino table and buy so-and-so stock. Sit down at the casino table and say hit me um, or say double down right they're telling you what to do at the casino table instead of telling you hey you can be the casino if you have a probability model that works out for you if you have a certain strategy that tends to pay off in most cases and is nonlinear like an option would be then you can make money um, over time whether it be through the majority of your trades paying off or whether it be just from the uh, the gains being more than the losses. So you might see that with well-placed long option strategies, um, well-placed call options, well-placed put options. You might lose the majority of your trades, but in the end, you more than break even because the gains um, outdo the losses. So again, you can get info from wherever you want, but I really suggest that you look at the source, not necessarily the background, But how the source uses, um, how the source determines his prediction. Make sure it's based on something before you follow it. Alright, the next person. he one says, Indicators cannot generate buying or selling signals. They are always lagging. Well, not necessarily. Um... That's that's an interesting hypothesis, but I don't think that is actually true Uh, Indicators are always lagging. So what he's saying is that the paradigm of lagging indicators concurrent indicators and uh, Predictive indicators. I'm sure there's another word for that is is false. He's saying that everything's a lagging indicator now from my experience I'm, and from backtesting that doesn't seem to be true, at least they're they're concurrent. It, actually they, they must know, they're predictive because if you look at earnings trades you'll see that many things, for example, look at the drift of a stock before it reports earnings. Most of the time the drift is in the direction of earnings. How is that not a how is how is then drift not a leading indicator? Um, so. I think he's just outright wrong here, um, but you know, his idea is ditch the ditch the indicators and find something else. Whatever he found must be working for him, or I hope it's working for him. I wouldn't ditch indicators; at least use them as kind of a second opinion. All right, next person is Manday Thirty-One. In the past month, he has changed the volatility tolerance balance targets. I don't know what that means, so we're going to move on to the next guy. Mankind says. he added, I added candlestick patterns to what I was already doing and have seen a significant change in wins and profit. I haven't seen a down day since I started this and I'm more consistent than ever. ever. I agree. Candlestick patterns can be very useful for short-term trading and for determining entry and exit points in longer-term trades. Uh, with... Just some simple code, you can backtest and program um, a candlestick analysis method for the simplest patterns to see whether they apply to the stock or ETF in question. What you'll find is that every stock and ETF has its own idiosyncrasies and not every candlestick pattern is true um, in terms of applying the standard theory to every stock. Now the reason this is so is every candlestick pattern behind it is a, you could say a psychological process. So imagine what's a simple one to talk about here. Uh, all right, let's talk about the hammer. That's a single candlestick, candlestick pattern. It is a, uh, you can say it's a rather sizable candlestick with no shadow at the top, but a long shadow at the bottom. Now, where the hammer appears in a chart is important, but overall, just looking at the hammer, you can get a general idea of what happened on that day and what the psychology behind that day was. Now, when I say psychology, I know it doesn't apply um, to everybody because a lot of the traders are gonna be algorithms or quants, just models. But still, what I mean by psychology is the overall buying and selling process that's going on behind those candlestick patterns. So when you think of the hammer, what you really see in a hammer is the strength of the bears you see how far down it can go before it bounces up to a territory that most investors and algorithms agree on so it shows the potential for breaking a support if that shadow goes below that support level now that can help you justify a short position if the hammer appears in a certain spot it can also help you justify a long position because it shows you that the bears didn't uh, bring it actually down below the support to where it stayed it it kind of defines the support at the bottom of a chart now when i use the hammer i'm just using it as an example here i don't really rely on the hammer that much instead i look at candlestick patterns that have more than uh more than one candlestick um this is something you need to look up if you plan on using, of course, you don't have to memorize them but you do need to look them up each time if you haven't memorized them. Now there's a caveat here, not every candlestick pattern that has a theory to it is actually statistically significant. Um, In other words, I I don't know the history of candlestick patterns, but some time ago they came from Japan. And there might have been some sort of heuristic theory for each candlestick pattern that wasn't based on statistics. And American investors simply uh, took that as fact. Now that we have really useful uh, technology, like every retail investor can use code and can gain access to past stock data to define certain candlestick patterns and then determine whether they actually have any real use in trading or investing. And if you run those back tests, you'll find some of them actually do work, whereas others don't. And then there are some that go against the theory. So if you look at these and you use them in your trading, you can use them exclusively if you wanted to. Um, This guy, Mankind, he said he added it to what he already has. Uh, And I recommend pretty much everyone at least consider candlestick patterns. Because at the very least, you can get a very decent accuracy as to what's going to happen the next day. Now, candlestick patterns can't really predict the uh, midterm or long-term future, but they give you a pretty good idea of what's going to happen the next day. And um, if you see a certain candlestick pattern that gives you a strong indication that the next day is going to open high or close low or move downward, then it gives you a good idea as to whether you should enter or to stay in a position. And this alone can help you in swing trading if you're going day by day. Now, there's one thing I should probably point out. Um, most of the literature you read on candlestick patterns is talking about daily candlestick patterns. So if you are a Forex trader and you're looking at the you know minutes or the hours, the candlestick theory and statistics behind it won't necessarily apply to those candlesticks. Remember, a day is, is very different than an hour, um, especially when you have stocks that only trade out eight hours a day. So don't try to generalize um, what you find in one set of data to whatever you're trading, if it's a different set of data. So if you're into equities and uh, you want to take data from Forex, in a, in a sense, all markets are the same, but in another sense, the the psychology behind the markets are not. And if we're talking about the psychology of candlesticks, if we're talking about candlesticks as giving us a window into the psychology of traders and investors, you need to know that these two markets have different psychologies, so you're not gonna be able to apply the candlestick results of one market to the other. I can give you a whole uh, podcast on candlestick patterns. It's probably not gonna be a good pa- podcast that I do because candlestick patterns are very visual. Um, I recommend you check out my Gap Game Plan program. i point out, I think I have the 20, I didn't make it like a, a clickbait list, like the 20 most common candlestick patterns. What I did was I pointed out like three or four candlestick patterns per type of gap. And those are the ones I pretty much use exclusively to find an entry or exit point on a gap trade. So you can check that out in the gap game plan. It's uh, DamonVero.com. Just click on courses, click on gap game plan, and you'll get that candlestick data. I think that's probably better than anything I could do on a podcast. All right, let's move on to the next guy. It is a person named Hab Hab Habslayer says, I now look at my trading account as a money machine that needs to be managed I'm trying to pump in as much dollars into the account through smart trades or relatively safe high dividend payers as well as a set of monthly amount from my personal account all right Uh, I mean that doesn't tell us anything useful he does mention high dividend payers I am personally opposed to dividend stocks let me point this out I'm opposed to dividend stocks for one main reason uh, let's say two main reasons first with options you can mimic dividends you can essentially uh, sell options you can sell covered calls which is actually not so good you could sell um, well you can use options in addition to a long synthetic strategy and you can just mimic a dividend that way. But that's not the main reason I'm opposed to dividend stocks. In fact, you might be surprised to hear me say I'm opposed to dividend stocks because I've said in the past, uh, the only reason you should ever buy stocks is for dividends. Now I'm talking about the only justifiable reason, but it's still not really justifiable. I'll tell you why. Stocks with dividends, stocks that pay out those dividends, statistically underperform in the market they underperform stocks that don't pay dividends. Now, there might be some reasons behind this, but we don't uh, really care about those reasons. So some people say, yeah, of course, dividend stocks don't pay out as, uh, don't give that many returns, as much returns, because uh, dividend stocks are value stocks and value stocks are not about growth. Okay, uh, but that's not really a point because what we're saying is overall, if you grouped all the stocks in the world into two different baskets, actually in, in the US market, sorry, into two different baskets, one with dividends, one without dividends, you find that on average, that basket without dividends gets more returns. So why choose a dividend stock if you know that the non-dividend stocks will give you a higher ROI? Now that's the primary issue with choosing dividend stocks and, and being very picky about choosing dividend stocks. But as I've said in the past, the only reason to hold a stock is because it gives you something that options cannot give you, and that's dividends. I also want to argue, and maybe I'll do this in another podcast, I also want to argue that you can mimic the income from dividends with options, by selling options smartly. Um, The example I was about to give was a simple example, but it's not a good example because uh, you're limiting your upside with a covered call. But think of it this way. If your goal is just to gain income, why does it need to be from a dividend? Why do you care so much that the company's paying you every quarter. Is that really a big deal? I think it's only a big deal to people who don't know how to manage uh, their entry and exit points. Because it's a, it, it feels safe to put your money into a stock and automatically have um, more money appear in your account every three months. But like I said, statistically, it's better just to hold growth stocks and then sell them. The problem is selling them. A lot of people, once they see a profit, um, they're not sure whether they should sell or not if it gets into oversold or overbought territory generally That's a good I- It's a good idea to be selling and taking profit waiting for a pullback and then buying back uh, but most people if They're the type of people to invest in dividend stocks. They're usually more conservative and This is a contradictory character trait Because the conservative people want lower risk, but a decent reward now, the issue here is that we have a way of looking at risk-reward in a quantifiable method, and that's the, the Sharpe ratio. So if you see the Sharpe ratio is really good for a highly volatile stock and stay away from it just because you feel that volatility is bad or you feel it's not a conservative company, it's just, it doesn't really make sense from a numerical perspective. So this trait, so-called conservatism, actually hurts you in the bottom line if you're attracted to dividend stocks i really hope you reconsider and at the very least try to branch out so that uh you're making more money overall and you know you can you can tell yourself whatever you want you can rationalize your 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 choice of dividend stocks but in the end it's going to come down to how much money you make and if you feel that getting Quarterly income without worry is your main goal. Then don't call yourself an investor or a trader, just t- call yourself like you know a lottery player essentially. Because if you buy enough tickets, you're going to make money as well, right? Dividend stocks aren't always profitable, you know, it can fall, and then the dividends you get, you convince yourself, Oh, okay, I only need to hold on to this stock for you know five more years and I'll break even. But what if the dividend? Is cut what if the stock keeps falling there are many factors that make dividend stocks just as unpredictable as a growth stock it's really not that conservative all right next next we have not an expert and he says I have sold out most of my Mooney CEFs uh, a, a Mooney CEF by the way is a municipal closed-ended fund municipal being offered by a local government and closed-ended fund being a kind of like an index fund or a mutual fund but it has a fixed number of shares so the shares will never be diluted and uh, you're, you're basically exchanging a limited good on the free market so not an expert says that he has sold out his Mooney CEFs and bought preferred CEFs due to discounts in NAV. The Mooney CEF sector are trading too close to and above NAV for anything yielding north of 6%. Alright, so this guy sounds like a pretty well-versed dividend investor. Um, A lot of these dividend investors prefer closed end funds for the same reason I just said. You're not going to see any dilution. Now, he said he bought preferred CEFs. I'm actually not so sure what that is. I don't buy dividend stocks. But when he discusses NAV and discounts NAV, that's generally what you are looking at when you choose a closed-ended fund. Um, So when you talk about a stock, we can use something like price-to-book or price-to-earnings to to get an idea of whether that stock is trading at a fair price. Now for closed-ended funds, you know better because you can see what that fund holds and what the asset value of that fund is. Uh, just from a fundamental or financial analysis. Now that being so, you can check that actual value against the trading price of the closed-ended fund, and if there's a discrepancy, if you find that it's trading at a, at, at more than NAV, it's called at a premium to NAV. And if it's uh, sorry, NAV is the uh, asset value, the net asset val- value. So if you find that the underlying stuff that you're buying in this fund is worth more than the price of the fund Well, you're buying at a premium. And generally that's not what you want to do unless you have a good reason to believe that this fund is gonna continue growing. So this guy is saying that currently the municipal closed ended funds are not a good buy. Um, they're trading at too much of a premium to the net asset value. And he has switched over to whatever is called preferred CEFs. So if you're into dividends, despite what I just said about the last answer, uh, you might want to check out the so-called preferred CEFs. I have a feeling not an expert is actually more of an expert on closed-ended funds and dividend funds than I am. All right, let's move on to Pets. Pets, Uh uh-oh, one, two. Pet said he started trading on his cell phone. Because his PC received a virus, and then I decided I decided to freak out and wipe everything. So I call it a two-week vacation. Trading via the phone, cut my trades down massively and probably helped me not make so many mistakes. I'm sure not. I'm not sure. Going back to 1990s technology is the solution, though. All right. So he just basically didn't have an answer for the question, and just. Well, he told the truth, I'm assuming. Uh, I don't like this answer at all. I'll tell you why. He believes that by cutting down his trades, he made fewer mistakes. Well, isn't that a big problem if the majority of your trades are mistakes? Isn't that what you're applying here? In that case, you have something fundamentally wrong with your trading strategy. And I would highly recommend you revise what you... Uh, Have been using to make your trades to place your trades and to get out of your trades If you don't have some sort of system that you've back tested and forward tested You should stay out of trading until you do all right So if the majority of the trades are mistakes really step back from your computer Stop trading for a bit figure that shit out and then step back into the game Let's move on to KC Lim. This is the last one. And actually, I planned for this podcast not to go over an hour because it's the first one. I want to gauge responses. So even though we have two questions left for all of these people, um, I'm not going to do it because that would turn this podcast into a three-hour podcast. I will go back. Um, if, if I get good responses to this first episode, This this kind of going through others questions and then uh, playing off their answers, moving into more in-depth topics. If this gets a good response, I will go through their other answers to my other two questions. If you remember, they're called, what is your biggest sticking point? And what would be able to improve your profitability? And then the the third question is, if you were rich, would you continue trading? Why or why not? Um, I can go through those next time if you like this format. If you would prefer a more in-depth format where I talk about one specific topic for an entire hour, um, we can do that as well. So I'm going to leave the other two questions on the back burner for now. We'll get into Casey Lim's answer. Let's see if it's actually worth talking about. I sharpened and developed a much higher probability trade plan by looking much closer at various trends with multiple time frame analysis. That tells me nothing. So guess what? We are not going to dig into this question all right we are at the 50 minute line um let me look at my plan here real quickly the idea was to go through these questions and then discuss uh, the YouTube responses that I never got back to uh, I'm not gonna do that you guys can see my YouTube videos ask me comments and I'll, I'll get to you if you have a good question the reason I don't respond to a lot of the YouTube comments is because a lot of them uh, can be answered simply by watching my other videos. Most of the basic questions I've answered in a video somewhere. If it's an obscure question and it's somewhere in a video and you'd have to dig through all the videos to find it, of course I'll give you an answer in the comments section. But if you're asking me, you know, um, how, do I, how do I close this trade? Well, I have a video for that. Go look at it. Then ask me the question in that video if you if you still can't figure out what to do. Okay, um, what was the topic of this podcast? Your biggest problem. Your biggest problem in. Uh, what was the last thing? What was a? What was your change in your trading methodology for this month? Now I'd like to finish this podcast by telling you mine. What was my biggest change in the last month? Well, unfortunately, it's nothing really interesting. I am now going to the gym pretty much at the market uh, open. So it means I cannot play market open. Uh, I'll have to play later in the day. Now, this is an issue for me because what I like to do is I like to run a candlestick analysis. We talked about this before, right? I like to run a candlestick analysis on any stock that I plan to buy or sell. In other words, I'm using candlesticks to determine an entry point. If I've already done a full fundamental analysis or technical analysis on a stock and I know that I want to buy it or I know that I want to get out of a position, I'm going to find a way to make sure that I get out at the best time possible. Now, if it's not an earnings-based trade, I'm going to look at the candlesticks and I'm going to backtest getting out at certain candlestick patterns. Usually I will find that I want to get in or out at uh, the open, market open. Not usually, I'd say about half, uh, less, less than, i say closing is usually the open and then um, exit is usually the end. It depends on the na- analysis, but here's the point. If I'm going to the gym, I cannot open or close a trade at market open, so I have to do it within the day. Now there's a problem because... Although I'd love to blindly uh, open or close that trade as if it were market open, the difference between doing that at market open and doing that in the middle of the day is that at market open, you have no info on that day. It opens at a certain price. It can open higher. It can open lower. I do care about that. But other than that, I'm not sure how it's going to move during the day. So I just tell myself, you know, if it opens higher today, I'm going to sell and get out, right? Uh, So my algorithm tells me what to do says, if it opens higher, sell. If it opens lower, just stay in and deal with it the next day. Now, if it opens higher and I come back from the gym and I was supposed to close the trade if it opened higher, but now I see that even though it opened higher, it fell throughout the day, now what do I do? Do I just pretend like I sold when it opened higher and, and lose that money? Well, so the past month I've been... Considering what I should do about this whether I should just blindly close my positions based on my data Or or do something different now the problem is I don't have inter intraday data Um, I have the opens and closes so my back test can't tell me when in the day if I'm not going to do it at open uh, Should I buy or sell? So I've just been using something very very simple. I've just been using intraday stochastics so if you watch any of my YouTube videos, you'll know that I use Stochastics a lot for looking at whether a stock is overbought or oversold. And I've been using them within the day as well, recently. Now, I don't have any back tests on this, and I'm probably not going to backtest this because I don't have the data. But based on my own uh, anecdotal sales and, and buys, I feel that this method works pretty well. Um, cause at the end of the day, I look back and, and many times I see myself getting out at the low point, uh, for like, you know, for, for, for selling a put, what I'm trying to say here is it seems like many of the times I get out at the perfect spot, like the daily high or the daily low. And that's just from reading the stochastics. Now it's not always like that. And again, it's anecdotal, but I'm not dumb. And I'm not gonna lie to myself if it's not working. I'll look for something else because when I first started this I didn't know if stochastics had some real Evidence or statistics for intraday effectiveness, and I still don't I don't have any data to back this up except for my own personal traits Um, So anyway, this is what I would recommend At least trying experimenting for yourself because it has helped me if you're gonna make decisions within the day in the middle of the day and you don't know when to sell if you see the stock keeps going up and you know you want to sell and take that profit but you're not sure when it's gonna stop going up and you're afraid that it's gonna fall and your common sense tells you just get out now well don't do that get out when the stochastics tell you to get out now how do you know I use what's called the fast stochastics there are three types of stochastic indicators there's fast slow and full they're all calculated slightly differently but essentially the same um, you can choose any of them. I use the fast because I have the feeling that the fast calculation makes more sense. Uh, it makes more logical sense if you look at the equation. That's just my feeling. Um, so, anyway, what's the sign? The stochastic sign, the stochastic sell or buy signal, is uh, dependent on your risk profile as well. Because I would say, technically, there are three different signals. Now I'm gonna tell you the moderate one. There's a risky one and there's a more conservative one. I'm gonna tell you the moderate one. And that is, wait until, by the way, stochastic indicators are two lines. You have the fast, uh, we're not gonna say that. You have, the, uh, you have the K line and the D line. Now, they're gonna go at certain uh, paces toward 100 or toward zero. What you want to watch for is when they both surpass 80 or when they both surpass 20. The former being an oversold section and the, the latter being an overbought. Uh, sorry, vice versa. If it goes really, really high, is that what I said? If it goes really, really high up above 80, if both lines are above 80, technically the stock is overbought. And if both lines go below 20, technically it's oversold your buy signal or sell signal comes when the K line falls uh okay let's talk about the oversold one first all right remember oversold is when they're both below 20 your buy signal in that case becomes when the K line crosses above the 20 so it's already fallen below 20 it turns around and goes back above 20 that is your buy signal now What about an overbought stock? In that case, you have both of the lines above 80. What you're looking for for your signal is the K line to fall below 80. At that time, you have your sell signal. And there's your stochastics. It works the same way intraday. I've been using the exact same strategy intraday to figure out those buy and sell points within the day. And it's worked pretty well for me. So that is my monthly change. Alright, so I think I'm going to wrap this up with a, uh, a request from you guys. I want to know if you like this format of the podcast. I'm doing this podcast in seasons. I would prefer to stick with one format for this, the entire season. Uh, for ease for me and for familiarity for you. And then later if you guys want to try a new format, we can do that the next season. So. My request for you is feedback. Do you like the format? Would you like to change the format? If so, how? And also, what are some topics you would like to discuss in stock talk? Obviously, I prefer to trade options, but that does not mean anything about not being able to talk about stocks. All of my analyses are on stocks. So my analyses apply to both stock traders and options traders. Uh, I personally trade options, so I like to talk about options strategies. The benefit of options is that you can convert a linear strategy. Remember, buying a stock is essentially linear. If it goes up, you gain a percentage that it moves up. And if it goes down, you lose a percentage that it goes down. But fucking car horns, man. All right, I'm back. I put a brick through that uh, car's window. And now we can conclude here. I want to know what topics you guys would like for the next podcasts. And I want to point out real quickly that the main benefit of options is the ability to convert a linear strategy to a non-linear strategy so that you gain almost exponential gains when the stock moves in the direction that you have predicted, but you can only lose um, a certain limited amount of money. That is an example of a non-linear strategy. Uh, ideally, I would like the podcast to be very specific for each episode um, and that would allow pretty much anyone to pick and choose the episodes they listen to. I don't want to make a very broad, boring, generic uh, stock podcast because if you want something generic, you can go to CNBC, right? You can go watch the news, get your stock picks from pundits who are probably shorting the same stock they're recommending and, uh, well, lose money that way. I would rather have very specific topics that are truly helpful, truly practical, and if they aren't, if I have made a podcast that you feel is not useful to you, well, hopefully it's, it's something that you saw the title of and you're like, hey, this could help me, therefore I should listen, and you find out it's not practical advice or it's too theoretical, too academic, in that case, let me know. I want this to be helpful, Otherwise, it's just a waste of my hour, truly. So please, feedback, I would love it. And in the meantime, if you would like to learn option strategies, you can check out my free education materials on Um If you wanna check out stock picks, specific stock picks, go to Seeking Alpha and find me there, daemonvariel, Seeking Alpha. And if you want just general quick stock advice or trading advice, find me on YouTube. I've got quick like 10 minute videos on specific topics. So there we go. That's my entire set of, there's my career basically laid out for you. You got your options education on my website, you got stock picks on Seeking Alpha, you got quick info on YouTube, and then we've got in depth, god damn, those alarms. What is going on? Alright, I'm back. I had to hotwire that car and drive it away and then take a bus back to the city. Anyway, leave your feedback wherever you found this podcast. I'll be posting it in multiple places, but I will be checking it. Or for the sake of uh, consolidating all the info, just send me an email or contact me anywhere. It doesn't really matter. I check pretty much everything. So that's it for the first episode. I hope you guys liked it. And happy trading.